0: Okay, so I just want to say good morning to you all, and um, I'm very thankful that you're here. I'm very honored to have the opportunity to open the Word of God with you. Um, I love being with ladies that love the Lord and love the Word of God, Um, especially young ladies, just to see that they're trying to use their relationship with Jesus Christ to, to be a light in their home and in their family. So let's just open in prayer, and then we're going to have a look at the book of Esther this morning. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this new day that you've given to us. We thank you, Father, that with the raising of the sun each and every day, we know that your faithfulness, your loving kindness, your mercy is renewed to us. And we know, Father, that you have a purpose and a plan for us each and every day, that our life is precious in your sight, and you have a work for us to do in, on this earth. Father, we just pray that you would help us to understand the principles that you have to teach us today, And not just to understand them, Father, but to embrace them and to use them in our lives. Thank you for each lady here, Father. And I just pray that you would open my heart and open their hearts, Father, to the truth of your word. We want to be uh, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We want to love him more, Father. We want to serve him. And so we pray that you would renew our mind today and transform our lives by the power of your word and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. amen. Amen. Okay, as I said, if you would just open in your Bibles with me to the book of Esther, if you have free hands (laughs) in a Bible. Um, I do some teaching back at our home church in Prescott Valley, or Prescott, Arizona, and we've just been going through the book of Esther. Um, They'll actually be doing chapter 10 tomorrow, finishing up the book tomorrow. So I kind of have Esther in my mind, and I have been really encouraged by the principles that we've looked at in the book of Esther And obviously, we can't cover the whole book. We're not going to be here till 4 o'clock this afternoon. But I'm going to kind of do an overview of the book, hoping that you are familiar with the story of Esther, and then um, just bring out some principles from it, some of the the favorite principles that I've found in the book. So Esther chapter 1, just a little bit of background on the book. Uh, Many of the Jewish people are now living in Persia. They were exiled into Persia. The exile is over. Some of the people moved back into Israel, back into the cities of Israel. But some of the Jewish people um, decided to stay in Persia. There are 127 provinces in Persia from India to Ethiopia. The capital city is Susa. Persia at this time is ruled by King Ahasuerus. Your Bible might say King Xerxes. That's just his Greek name. He was known to be a cruel and a violent man. Um, And among the people, the Jewish people living in the time of Book of Esther is a a great man of God named Mordecai, who is raising his cousin Esther, who is an orphan. I think Mordecai is one of the most overlooked heroes in the Old Testament. He really is a hero in this story as well. The time frame for the Book of Esther is around 483 to 470 uh, B.C., before the birth of Christ. So I'm just going to open with uh, Esther chapter one and verse, read, read verse one through four. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. So he has this big banquet for 180 days, six months, to show his majesty and his splendor. Sounds a little bit arrogant on my part, doesn't it to you? (laughs) And amongst this feast or this banquet, there was a lot of feasting, there was a lot of drinking. And at some point he asked his queen Vashti to come before all the men of the city and to display her beauty. It's not specifically told us uh, what that display would have looked like, but we kind of get the idea that it probably would have been an improper display of her beauty because she refused to come. Of course, this put all the men of Susa, the capital, into a big, um, a a perplexing situation. What do we do? The queen has refused her husband's Mm. orders, and if we just let her get away with it, then all the women of Persia are not going to be submissive to their husbands. So this was a big issue, and his advisors said, you need to remove Queen Vashti from the throne. So Queen Vashti was removed from the throne, because of her um, unwillingness to submit to her husband's request. Now, one thing that we're going to find in the book of Esther, which I think is just wonderfully amazing, is that in this whole book of 10 chapters, the name of God is not mentioned. The Lord, the word Lord is not found in this book. The word God is not found in this w- book. There is no reference to God. And yet we're going to see that his fingerprints are on every page in every event that took place, the hand of God is working. And this is an encouragement to me because I have traveled quite a bit throughout the world as we have done many, many mission trips. And sometimes I'll leave my home in Arizona or leave my home when we were living in Australia and travel halfway across the world and back, and I will think I have not seen any mention of God. No Christian t-shirts, no churches, No Christian posters, not heard God mentioned in conversation. And it's like, where is God in the world? Like there is no visible evidence of him. And yet as believers in Jesus Christ, we know by faith that God's hand is constantly working in our lives. So that's how it is in the days of Esther. So in Esther chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 5 through 9 for you. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had taken into exile, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. A lot of big words, a lot of terms. Basically, Mordecai is living in exile in Persia, but he is a Jew. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, Esther is, hi, Esther is his cousin, obviously a younger cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa the capital into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. We're in Esther, doing an overbook overview of the book of Esther. So in Esther chapter two, they're looking for young virgins to take Queen Vashti's place. King Ahasuerus wants to choose a new queen. So beautiful young virgins from all over Persia were brought into the harem. And they, one by one, went into the bedchamber of the king in the evening and then would come back out in the morning. And the king got to choose from all of these beautiful young virgins. Kind of a sordid situation, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, why would God put this beautiful young Jewish woman in such a situation? Well, he had a plan. And we live in a fallen world. And sometimes because we live in a fallen world, we are sub- subjected to fallen world situations. And Esther was. And yet God had an amazing plan in it. So let's drop down now to verse 15. Esther goes through a whole year of preparation for this one night to be in the, beds, the king's bedchamber. Verse 15. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter... When her turn came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So in this chapter, we three times see the words that Esther found favor. She found favor with the eunuch that was in charge of her. She found favor in the eyes of all, and she found favor in the eyes of King Ahasuerus. And this word found favor uh, Thayer's dictionary, Thayer's Biblical Dictionary describes it as this or defines it as this. The spiritual condition of one governed by the power of God's grace. So even though she was thrown into quite a sordid situation, she was also under the power of God's grace because God's hand was working in her life and in this, these days. But we also are under the government of God, the power of God's grace. We also, as believers in Jesus Christ, each one of us have found favor with God. We are recipients of his grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And we are given in Jesus Christ all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means that you and I have everything that we need spiritually to live a life of faith and to live a life of submission, surrender, and obedience to God. 2 Corinthians 9:8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed and abundance for every good deed. So the lack is never on God's part because he pours out his grace to us. And sometimes we think about situations that we might be put in and we say, I just don't know, I just don't think that I can handle that situation. Have you ever thought that? You've seen maybe something that someone else has had to go through and you're like, man, I'm glad it's them because I couldn't go through that.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, God
0: gives us the grace with the trial, with the test. He doesn't give us the grace ahead of time. He gives it to us as we need it. Abounding, lavish, overflowing, sufficient. You know, Paul had a time when he questioned God's plan in his life. He had that thorn in the flesh. And he said, I prayed three times that the Lord would take that thorn away. He thought it would be a hindrance to his ministry. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul came to the conclusion that power is perfected in weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. Because when we are weak and we come to the end of ourselves and we find that we are empty of what we need to handle a situation, it's then that we go to God and we find His grace is abundant and His grace is sufficient. So Esther found favor with God and with those around her, but we too have found favor with God. So at the end of chapter two, Esther, this young, beautiful Jewish lady, is now queen of Persia. Isn't that interesting? How God would raise up an orphan girl, a Jewish orphan girl, to be the queen, we would say the flotus of Persia, the first lady of Persia, um, in in a foreign land. An amazing situation that only the hand of God can bring about. And then in chapter three, it's a little bit of a dark chapter. In chapter 3, there comes into the story a man named Haman. And Haman, like King Ahasuerus, is very arrogant, very full of himself, and has a very violent nature. And Mordecai rubs him the wrong way. Let's see what this looks like. Verse 1. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. And this made Haman really angry, that one single man would not bow down to him. And Haman knew that Mordecai was a Jew. Haman's lineage, he was an Agagite, he was an Amalekite. And throughout the history of the Old Testament, the Amalekites and the Jews Were enemies. The Amalekites continually attacked the Jewish people. And God had promised the Jewish people that he would utterly destroy the Amalekites from the face of the earth. So there is a conflict here in chapter three between these two men, but Haman really represents all of the Amalekites, and Mordecai really represents all of the Jews. Can you kind of grasp that? Because it's an important part of the story. So in verse five, When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole kingdom of Persia. So there's this conflict between just Haman and Mordecai. But Haman's like, I don't want to just get this guy Mordecai. I want to get all of them, all of the Jews. I want to destroy all of them. And so he goes to the king and he says, King, there are people living in your kingdom that are not obeying your laws. Laws lie. And these people need to all be destroyed. Another lie. And King Ahasuerus, who was mostly into feasting and drinking and was a violent man by nature anyway, said, Sure, take the signet ring, do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. So Haman sent out a decree throughout the land of Persia, that on a certain day, about 10 months time from here, on a certain time and a certain day, all the people of Persia could rise up and attack the Jews and utterly destroy them from the face of the earth. No, (laughs) you already know it's not going to happen, is it? (laughs) So at the end of chapter three, look at the last verse. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion or was in turmoil. So how does chapter three end? Things are not looking very good for Mordecai and Esther, are they? A very bad situation. And yet we know that God's hand is at work. And this should give us encouragement as well. Because we all go through confusing times. We go through times of turmoil and we look around and we say, where is God in this? This certainly can't be God's will. This certainly can't be God's plan. But God's hand is at work. Chapter four is probably the most famous or well-known chapter in the book of Esther. Let's look at what happens here. Esther is in mourning. All the city of Susa is in mourning. And Esther is kind of in a protected place in the kingdom, isn't she? She's not out at the city gate or not in the streets of Susa. So she doesn't really know what's going on. But word gets back to her about this decree that all of the Jews are going to be destroyed. She finds out that Mordecai is mourning and he's covered with ashes. And so she sends word, Mordecai, put on some clothes. What's all this mourning about? And Mordecai sends word back to her and says, this is the decree, this is what has been ordered to happen in the land of Persia. Wake up, Esther, get on your big girl pants, because this is real life. So Esther spoke to Hathak, verse 10, and said, answer Mordecai in this way. Mordecai has said, Esther, you need to go talk to the king. Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. And they related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all of the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. This man is a man of faith and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether to have, excuse me, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Have you seen those words quoted before mm-hmm. for such a time as this Mordecai is very oriented to the plan of God and Esther is has made it a habit in her life to submit to his leadership to do to, she obviously respects him as a wise man but now he is saying to her be willing to lie to lay down your life for the sake of your people and she balks at it at first If I go into the king and he doesn't put out to me the golden scepter, I could die. And he says, suck it up, princess. It's time to go and do what needs to be done to save your people. So Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. She grew up spiritually really quickly here, didn't she? Mm -hmm. She stepped up to the plate and she said, "Okay, I'm willing to do what my spiritual leader Mordecai has asked me to do. I'm willing to give my life for the life of my people to risk that. But she doesn't do it in her own strength, does she? What does she do before she goes to the king? She she fasts and prays for three days. And she asks others to come around her and join her in that, which is a very good plan. She is a wise woman, a wise young woman. So in chapter five, we have Esther's first banquet. She goes before the king. She puts on her royal robe. She dresses As the queen in royalty and beauty, in her place of honor, reminding King Ahasuerus, we're married here. She hasn't seen him for 30 days, right? So she goes before him and he sees her and he says, Esther, he holds out the golden scepter and says, Esther, what is your request? And she said, I have prepared a banquet for you. I would like for you to come to my banquet and bring Haman as well, because she knows Haman is the culprit. The king doesn't know this yet. So the king comes to this banquet and brings Haman. They feast together. They drink together. They enjoy time together. She probably is kind of buttering him up a little bit, you know, as we as wives sometimes do with our husbands. When we have a a question to ask of them that they might not wholeheartedly agree with, we know how to butter him up. And I think she did that. But the hand of God, again, is, is working. And Haman is so... Enthralled with this promotion that he's been giving. He's so full of himself that he totally enjoys the banquet. But when he gets back home, he says to his wife, I totally enjoyed the banquet. They were honoring me right there with the king. I'm so amazing. But I'm still angry because this Mordecai will not bow down and pay homage to me. And so his wife says, Why didn't you build a big gallows that you can hang Mordecai on? And so that night, Haman has a huge big gallow. It was about six stories high, built with the plan to hang Mordecai. Not a good plan. Chapter six, the king can't sleep. This is after the first banquet. Well, first he says to to Esther, what is your request? And she said, you know, my request is come back tomorrow and let's have another banquet. So she really is buttering them up, isn't she? (laughs) So that night, the king cannot sleep. And in chapter six, he's not not able to sleep. So he says to his aides, go and get me the books, the history books, the chronicles. And he just happens to turn to a page that recorded an act that Mordecai did. Mordecai heard that there were people plotting to kill the king. And Mordecai exposed the plot and basically saved the king's life. And so the king says, wow, I... I didn't realize that happened or I forgot that happened. Has any been, anything been done to honor this man, Mordecai? And they say to him, no, nothing was done to honor Mordecai. So in chapter six, he has Haman dress Mordecai in royal robes, put Mordecai on one of the royal studs and lead Mordecai through the gates of city, through the capital city of Susa and say, this is how God or this is how the king wants to honor Mordecai a man who um, serves him. How humiliating would that have been for Haman? Because Haman has in, in his mind, I just want to see Mordecai and all of his people killed. Amazing. That's chapter six. Then in chapter seven, we have Esther's second banquet. The king and Haman go back to Esther's banquet again. Again, they are feasting, they are drinking, and the conversation comes around to the subject of what's what's up Esther what's going on what's in your mind what are you thinking about and so Esther finally says verse 3 this is chapter 7 and verse 3 queen esther answered and said if i have found favor in your sight o king and if it please the king let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request for we have been sold i and my people to be destroyed to be killed and to be annihilated. And if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent for the trouble would not commensurate with the annoyance to the king. And King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. Your sin will find you out. Haman's conspiracy has been now exposed by Queen Esther. The the king gets very angry, goes, goes out into the palace garden, and Haman basically just falls all over the queen begging for mercy, but to no avail. And the king comes back in and sees Haman falling all over the queen, which angers him all the more, and he says, hang him. Mordecai's death is ordered By the king. In verse 9, the king says, hang him on the gallows that he himself made for Mordecai. And I'm just going to read the next three verses together. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So this is kind of the climax of the story where the conflict is brought to an end. And I know this has been a lot of history and a lot of just telling a story. I hope you've been able to follow it. But what we see in these few short verses is a character study of sowing and reaping. Charles Good said, if you sow an attitude, you reap an act. If you sow an act, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap character. And if you sow character, you reap destiny. And can't you see the difference between Haman's attitude, one of arrogance and pride and self-promotion, And the attitude of Mordecai and Esther, one of humility, one of dependence on God, one of surrender to God. What you sow, you will also reap. It's a law. It's a natural law. If you put corn seeds in the garden, what are you going to get? corn. If you put potatoes in the garden, what are you going to get?
1: garden
0: <laughs> Whatever you sow in the natural realm, you will reap. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. If we sow in pride, we will reap a, the destiny that pride brings. And it's not a good destiny. Look at what Haman, what happened to Haman. But if we, we sow in humility and surrender to God, if we sow in faith, we will reap a good harvest of faith the fruit of the Spirit, blessings in time, and reward in eternity. So you can see the difference in their attitudes and the difference in their outcome. Haman lost everything, including his life. And now Mordecai and Esther are put into the highest place in the kingdom next to King Ahasuerus. They have the king's signet ring. They have power. They have authority. But they are going to use it for God's glory. An amazing turn of events So Esther and Mordecai come up with a second decree. And the second decree is to send out throughout the land of Persia, just like the first decree. And the second decree says all the Jews on that day, if they are attacked, are given the freedom and the right to fight back and to utterly destroy anyone that rises up against them. So we see the hand of God working in all of these events that we've talked about. And at different times, the the situation was very dark and looked very hopeless. And yet the hand of God was working all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, just like the hands of God work in our life today. So I want to talk a little bit about the hands of God, because you can tell a lot about a person from their hands, can't you? Look at my hands and she's old. She's married. Young hands are going to look very different than my hands. The hands of a plumber are going to look very different than the hands of a a surgeon. You can tell a lot about a person by their hands. And we can tell a lot about God by looking at what the scriptures have to say um, about his hands. So I want you to think of John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When baby, when Jesus left the, the throne of God in heaven, and he came to earth as a little baby, the, the son of God born to this earth as a tiny little baby, you know, in that cradle, not a cradle, but in that feed trough, Just as a newborn, what do newborns do with their hand? They'll grip the the hand of their mother, won't they? That's such an amazing thing. I actually saw one time a picture of a surgeon who was doing a surgery on a mother's womb. And you could see the hand hand of that little baby in the womb reached out and gripped the, the finger of the surgeon. It's incredible, isn't it? That first little bond of intimacy between a mother and a baby. And probably baby Jesus did that with his his mother Mary. And then as he grew, he maybe learned to play patty cake, or maybe he chased after butterflies, or maybe he looked up in, in wonder at the stars of the night sky, stars that he himself had created, the hands of Jesus showing us his humanity. But as he grew and he went into public ministry, his hands became the hands of a miracle worker. He changed the water into wine, He made the deaf to see and the blind or the deaf to hear and the blind to see. Um, He did all of these miracles. So the hands of Jesus Christ, then revealing to us his deity, doing things that only God could do. And though his hands were the hands of deity, they were also the hands of a servant, weren't they? They washed the feet of the disciples. They welcomed the little children. They broke the bread and fed the people. All of these things Jesus did to serve others. Because he came to this earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Finally, his hands were hands of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were hands of prayer, praying, God, if there is any way, let this cup be passed from me. But not, not my will, but your will be done. But then when the betrayer came with the soldiers, his hands of prayer did not resist but they lay idly by his side as they came to arrest him. He didn't fight back. He went willingly. We know that he was taken to Herod. He was beaten. He was scourged. A crown of thorns was put upon his head. He was made to carry that heavy cross to Golgotha until finally the hands of God were pierced by those nails as he hung on the cross. And he hung on the cross that he did not deserve to pay for sins that he did not commit hung there in our behalf, willingly, willingly going to his death for us. And then these nail-scarred hands reach out to us, they reach out to the world with the offer of life, abundant life, eternal life, life that is freely given to those who believe. The hands of Jesus Christ telling us so much about who he is and what he's done for us. But there are many verses also that speak about the hands of God. We know that as we turn to Jesus Christ in faith, we become become held in his mighty grip. And his mighty grip is so mighty that we cannot be pried out of that. Once he holds on to us, there is nothing we can do to be loosened from that grip. We are eternally secure through faith in Jesus Christ. And then scripture says he is our creator and the universe is his handiwork. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Have you ever stood at the edge of the beach, at the edge of the ocean? You're a little bit inland here, but probably you have. And that vast ocean before you, and yet it, it says God just, Jesus just holds that in the hollow of his hand. And you look at the, the majesty, the immensity of the night sky, but to him, it's just like, oh yeah, I got it in the span of my hand. How mighty and awesome and huge is our God. And he is the potter and we are the clay. Isaiah 64, eight says we should, we are the very work of his hands. And because of this, Psalm Psalm 92, four says, we should sing with joy at the work of his hands. And they are the hands of faithfulness. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even those may forget, but I will not forget. I love this one. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your name written on the palms of God's hands. Incredible. Does God really have hands? Everybody's afraid to say, Uh, (laughs) I don't know. There's all these verses. Does he really have hands? No, he's spirit, isn't he? It's an anthropomorphism. In other words, a, a physical term that is given to us to help us better understand God. Yeah, he has his eye on you. That's right. Yeah. There's many anthropomorphisms in the Bible. It's just so that we can, because we relate to our physical bodies and our physical world, but God wants us to understand who he is and what he's done for us. So his hands are the hands of help, the hands of a caregiver. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Isaiah 59.1. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So that hand that just spans the universe is the one that upholds you and holds you and cares for you and keeps you safe. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. One Peter 5, 6. And then they are hands of friendship and hands of fellowship. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Psalm 37 verses 23 through 26. And I had just put this study together on the hand of God. And there's a lady in our church named Dodie, a dear little old lady who um, is really suffering with cancer. And I brought her a meal and I was just sitting on the couch with her talking and She was just full of, I mean, you would never know that she was suffering from cancer. She was just full of life and full of joy and talking about the Lord. And she said, you know, I was in the hospital and I was laying in my hospital bed and I had my hands kind of laying out like this. She said, I felt the Lord hold my hand. Isn't that just such a beautiful thing? Because sometimes God like moves through the veil and we can actually feel what he is doing for us, especially in times of trial, in times of suffering. And I was just so encouraged that she had shared that with me. His hands are hands of protection. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. So these are just some of the promises that we have about the hand of God working in our life. There are many other verses. You can do a word study on it. Other verses call his hands mighty, valiant, righteous, strong, holy, glorious, and good. These are the hands of God that worked in the days of Esther. And they are the same hands that work in our lives because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The hands that helped Esther and Mordecai are the same hands that are available to help us. And we can praise him for that wonderful promise. So long ago, the story of Esther was written. But her story is over. Her story is history. But her story was so important that it's recorded in the word of God for us. And God is writing a story of your life. He is writing a story of my life. And time is the only time that that story can be written. Today, that story is being written. What are we doing with our life today? It's so important. So this decree, this second decree, was sent throughout the land of of Persia, giving the Jews the freedom and the right to fight up, to raise up, and to defend themselves. And I want you to look at the last verse, the last, sorry, the last few verses in chapter 8. If you have the book of Esther open, turn to Esther chapter 8. I want to read verse 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susha shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. What a difference from the confusion and the turmoil of chapter three. And in each and every province and in each and every city, Wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. And that sentence right there, and many among the peoples of the land became Jews. I feel like that is the most important sentence in the whole book. Because what we really see is that the hand of God was orchestrating all of these events in Mordecai and Esther's life. First of all, the first layer of it is to show us their steadfast faith. We learn a lot from looking at their steadfast faith. But we also see that God orchestrates events in the world because he wants people to know him. He wants people to believe in him, to come to him in faith. And God can work in any circumstances, circumstances of your life and circumstances around the world to bring people to a saving knowledge of Him. Throughout the Old Testament, you will see the phrase that they might know that I am the Lord. So many things God did so that people would see that He is the Lord God. And I like where it says, for the Jews there was light and gladness and joy, and honor. So I want you to think with me about that word light for a little bit. Because Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A light is not meant to be hidden. A light is meant to shine for all to see. And a light is meant to shine brightly. And so just in closing this book of Esther, I would like to just challenge you with the question, do you want the light of Jesus Christ to shine brightly in your life? Do you want to be a light shining in a dark world? Do you want to be a light to your family, to your friends, to this nation and to the world? Or do you just want to cuddle up with all of your comforts and say, sorry, Lord, I don't have the diligence, the willingness, the surrender or the faith to do that. Just let me live my life. Or do you want to say my life for God's wonderful plan." Do you want to say like Isaiah, Lord, here I am, send me. Lord, here I am, use me. So I'll try to go through this a little bit quickly, but I just took the word light and I want to share with you five practical things that you can do to be a light shining in a dark place. Five practical things. L-I-G-H-T. The L is for live out your faith. We've all heard the saying, Don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Live out your faith. There's a verse in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. So if someone sees sees something in you, a hope in you that they don't have, they, they. well, if someone comes to ask you, they obviously have seen something in your life that is different, right? There's something about you that's different than the other mothers. There's something about you that's different about the other wives. There's something different about your life. And they want to know what it is. So does that mean that they might just come up to you and say, excuse me, but you could, could you tell me a reason for the hope that is in you? It's not going to happen like that. But they might say something like, how is it that you can be going through this time of trial and yet you remain so cheerful, you remain so hopeful? How is it that your marriage has love and kindness, that you live in unity together and I struggle so hard in my marriage? They might say, how is it that you can have a, a death sentence on your life, you can have some kind of a sickness and a deep disease and yet you don't seem to be afraid to die? It might come to you like that. But there's something about your life because you're living out your faith. There's something about you that they can see is different. And they want that in their life. Live out your faith. It's very important. I am my neighbor's Bible. He reads me when we meet. Today he reads me in my home. Tomorrow on the street. He may a friend or relative or slight acquaintance be. But I am my neighbor's Bible and he is reading me. And you are writing a gospel each day by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithless or true. What is the gospel according to you? People are watching you. Your children are watching you. If you have an unbelieving husband, he is your mission field. If you are raising little children, they are your mission field. Be the light of Jesus Christ in your home so that they want what you have in your heart. So L, live out your faith. I, intercede for the lost. Prayer is powerful. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And we need to intercede for the lost. You probably all have friends or relatives who are unbelievers. I know I do. Our responsibility is first to live out our faith so that they can see that, and then to pray for them. Because if we pray for them, God's hand is going to intervene and work in their life to bring them, hopefully, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Intercede for the lost. You know, Paul had such a burden for the Jewish people, for his kinsmen. He said, I have unceasing sorrow and grief in my heart for my kinsmen. I would be willing to be accursed or separated from Christ for their sake. Do you have that kind of a burden for unbelievers? I don't think my burden is as strong as Paul's was. But Paul has, or but God has given me a burden, especially for a certain people. My burden in evangelism is for the children of India. I've been to India 30 times. I've been able to give the gospel to thousands of little Indian children. And no matter how many times I've given the gospel over a span of a trip, When I get to the airport and I have to leave India, I just break down in tears because I think, Lord, there's 700 million more children than haven't heard. That's where God has put my burden. Do you have a burden for lost souls? And if you don't, you're missing out on something very precious in the Christian life. And I would ask that you would pray that God would give you a burden for someone or some group of people intercede specifically for people you know that are unbelievers. But I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, Lord, send the gospel throughout America. Let it go out amongst our kinsmen, our people, our countrymen in a powerful way. America needs to turn back to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, Lord, send the gospel out throughout this world, praying in a very general sense, but still praying. Because if you pray for that evangelistic movement, when someone comes to Christ because God is moving in their life, you are a part of that answer. You have entered into teamwork with God to reach lost souls. Have a burden for them. So L, live out your faith. I, intercede for the lost. G, give to missions. Give to missions. There are missionaries who have given up everything. They've given up home. They've given up family. They've given up their country to go live on a foreign field. They suffer Mm -hmm. there. They work hard there. They get lonely there. They are persecuted there. They find the work sometimes very difficult. We have friends, uh, Tirs and I, a young lady that was in our church in Australia two years ago. They buried their third child on his seventh birthday in Mm -hmm. Mozambique. Mm -hmm. That was Matt and Debbie. Yeah. He became, he became sick one evening, didn't each mu- eat much dinner, went to bed that night, and the next morning on his birthday he died. Hmm. They give up a lot. They need support. They need financial support. They need prayer support. They need encouragement. If you get newsletters or emails that are newsletters from a mission group or a mission family, don't just say, Oh, I don't have time for that. What's on TV? Mm-hmm. Read it. They put a lot of work into that newsletter, and they need to know that somebody has read it. If you read it, respond to it. Thank you for sharing what the Lord's doing in your life. Thank you for sharing what the Lord's doing in your work. You can't imagine what an encouragement that would be to them. Support them, give to them in any way you can. I read a. Oh, he is so cute. <laughs> I read a statistic lately that said Americans as a whole spend more money on Halloween costumes than they do on supporting foreign missions. That is a travesty. We should be ashamed of that. Give to missions. The next one is a helping hand. Be a helping hand. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. If you are willing to show the love and the care that you have for them, they will be more willing to listen to the words of the gospel that you then have to share to them. We help one another in a body of Christ, but also let's be willing to reach outside the body of Christ to show our love with a meal, with an outing, with a, a visit, something you can do to show them the love of Christ that you have within them. Be willing to be a helping hand. Jesus said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They need to see the love of Christ working in your life. So live out your faith. Intercede for the lost. G, give to missions. H, be a helping hand. What's the last letter? T, T. take the message with you wherever you go. You are a voice of the gospel wherever you go. If you go to China, you go to India, you take that message with you. You think, man, I'm on a mission trip. I'm going to take the message with me. Well, let Walmart be your mission field. Let the school be your mission field. Let your children be your mission field. Wherever you are, you have the message in your heart. Take that message with you and be willing to share it. Are you shy? I, in, in my flesh, I am such a shy person. And like years ago, if there were more than two people in the room, I would not speak because I knew I would say something stupid. <laughs> That's just having your eyes on yourself. Sometimes being really shy is just a very self-centered way to live. And I'm so thankful that my husband encouraged me and the Spirit of God helped me to come outside of that little shy, closed-off shelf in order to closed off self, in order to share the Word of God. If I say something stupid, so what? um, I I do that. I stumble and stutter and I get the words all mixed up. But if people can see the love of Christ in me and see a fire burning inside of my heart, who cares if I stumble and stutter and don't know the right word? Take the message with you wherever you go. It's very important that the the redeemed of the Lord, see, I just stumbled and stuttered, that the redeemed of the Lord are able to speak out about their faith, and about who Jesus Christ is. Live out your faith, intercede for the lost, give to missions, be a helping hand, and take the message with you wherever you go. Years ago, I was in Burma. And um, very interesting country, very interesting culture. It's Myanmar. Yeah. 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 So we were there at, um, doing a conference and I had some classes with the ladies and I loved I loved Myanmar, loved Burma because I was actually a tall person there. <laughs> the, the ladies there were like they came up to my shoulder, they were such cute little little things. And there were some ladies there that had been children when the early missionaries came back in the 1940s. John and Isabel Kuhn were pioneer missionaries in northern Myanmar. If you've never read any of Isabel Kuhn's books, I would recommend, highly recommend them to you. I think they're out of print now, but you can still sometimes find them on Amazon. One of my favorite missionary writers, and we've actually had the privilege of going into some of the villages where she worked. She and her husband worked in China and Myanmar. But anyway, we're in Myanmar, and these little ladies that had been children when John and Isabel Kuhn were working there, and they said... They learned a song when they were in Sunday school and they sang the song for us. And it went like this, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And sometimes as we mature as Christians, we need to go back to what we learned in Sunday school. Mm -hmm. God has put a light in our heart and we need to let that little light shine because many people in this land need to know who God is Teresa, so would you like to close in prayer?
1: Dear Lord, thank you so much uh, for this precious time that we've had, Lord, just being in your word and um, going through, Lord, uh, Esther, Lord. I just thank you so much for her life, Lord. I thank you for her legacy, and I thank you for um, the way that you continue to teach us and mm-hmm. um, speak to us, Lord, and lead us and, um, through her life, Lord, but I just thank you too, just after bringing me, Lord, the message you gave to her this morning um, through your Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us um, for what uh, you have planned for us to hear, Father. And Lord, I just pray that for each of us that our eyes be open, Lord, and our heart be open um, to what it is that you desire of us, Lord, um, through being a light, uh, Lord. And I pray that um, we can uh, be open with one another, Lord, and just, uh, we can walk with each other, Father, um, in what that looks like and how to carry that out before you, Father, to honor and glorify you. Mm-hmm. and take your gospel um, into other to others throughout this community, Lord, and the opportunities and the ministries that you've given each of us um, going out from here. Lord, I just pray, too, um, that for those um, aspects, Lord, that Nan, Nan brought up, Lord, that are mm-hmm. out of our comfort zone, Lord, or, um, that when you keep nudging us and directing us, Lord, and leading us because you so mm-hmm. desire for us to taste, that, um, taste that, that privilege, Lord, of humility and just walking with you and walking in your spirit, Lord, that... Um, that you would just give us the courage, Lord, mm-hmm. um, if it's replying to an email or if it's um, taking a meal to somebody, Lord, um, that we would respond to that and that we would mm-hmm. do that, Lord, so that others can can taste you, Lord, can mm-hmm. seek you, and that we can be your hands. Um, Lord, thank you so much for your scripture this morning, and Lord, thank you so much um, for your truth and your words, Lord, and Lord, all the chaos and all the craziness in this world, Lord, and all the things that distract us, Father, thank you for protecting this time um, and helping us to, to show up this morning, Father, um, and Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, that, um, that is the rock in our lives, Lord, and it doesn't change, Lord, um, and you don't change, and Lord, I thank you for that. Um, Lord, thank you so much, too, for, um, for our families, um, for our children, for the men in our lives, Lord, and um, for the way that you continue to mm-hmm. um, to reveal yourself to us in all things, Lord, and I just pray that our eyes continue to be open um, and that we can continue to praise you, Lord, in the highs and the lows, um, knowing and trusting who you are, Lord, um, and that you are who you say. Mm-hmm. Lord, these things just play before you, and you just touch them, sing, and pray. Amen. Amen.